Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. Bob again. I've got Leadership Psychology, How the Best Leaders Inspire Their People. And I've got Alan Cutler on the line. Alan, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. All right. Well, you know, I've gone through this book and it's, oh my gosh, there is so much information in here, all these little uh, excerpts and quotes from people. It's a heck of a lot of information. Why why do you think that this information has to get out there to leaders uh, today? Well, you know, Bob, there's thousands and thousands of books on the subject of leadership written every year. Um, somebody once said, if you pile them one on top of the other, you'd reach the moon or you'd, <laughs> you'd circumvent the world three times or something ridiculous. But there are tens of thousands of books written on the subject of leadership every year. Um, so, you know, we need something a bit different. There's equally a lot of books written on the subject of psychology every year. But there are very, very few books, really a handful, literally, of books that combine the two disciplines and look at the psychological needs of a leader. So I think that's what makes the book different. Now, do you think it's a book that should be read by HR people or should it be read by leaders so that they can guide HR? What do you think? Oh, I think both. I really do. And also, we've designed a book for two markets, one practicing leaders and indeed HR managers, but practicing managers in general, but also for students who are uh, studying for management qualifications and indeed HR qualifications. I I teach um, the psychology uh, of business, business psychology at a local university and several of our students on the master's course are planning to be HR managers. So, you know, it does have two markets. Going through the book, I really noticed that there's a ton of information about self-awareness. And do, do you think that's a, a fundamental problem with a lot of leaderships out there that they they think they're one way, but they're actually another way? Well, let me ask you a question, Bob. Have you, have you ever worked for a boss, a manager, and you thought, how on earth did he or she get that job? <laughs> I, could, I could do it better than him. Yeah. So I think that answers the questioning that there are a lot of people out there holding leadership positions who are not very good leaders. And uh, I call them badge holders. They they hold the badge of leadership, which could be on their desk that says general manager, on their door that says chief executive, on their overalls that says supervisor or on their whites that says head chef. So they hold the badge of leadership but they're not very good leaders. So I think self-awareness is a really critical aspect if you're going to seriously look in the mirror and say, what sort of a leader am I? Well, also there's this other phenomenon where you get promoted inside the organization and you may be an amazing manager and then they end up making you a leader or or maybe you're just great at adjusting a widget and you're fantastic and you've been there a long time and suddenly they make you the manager and you're horrible at being the manager. Why doesn't HR understand that giving them a bigger position, more responsibility outside of what they love to do is the worst thing they could do for that person? Well, I just think that's happens so often, doesn't it? And we've all seen people who have been promoted. Well, in fact, there's a, there's a principle, I don't know whether you've heard of it, the Peter principle, mm-hmm. that people are promoted to the level of their um, use, uselessness, to their 
um, inability. So somebody's great at doing their job and they get promoted to supervisor and they manage that okay. Um, but then they finally take that last promotion and they just can't cope because they don't have the leadership skills. Uh, why do HR do it? Well, it's cheaper to, in, to um, promote internally. Uh, it's also quite political very often. But why do the organizations not seriously look at these people? And if they think they have the potential for promotion to a, a higher leadership position, then promote them, but train them, develop them, and, and ease them into the job instead of just throwing them in the deep end and say, there you are, you're a leader, go and do it. Mm. Well, I, I think you hit a nail on the head where people get thrown into those positions and then they get zero support. It's like, okay, you're the leader now, you figured out. That's what leaders are supposed to do, which is insane. It is. And it's so costly. Mm. Um, you know, the cost of having a, uh, a poor person in a leadership position is, is enormous. I mean, there's another phrase that people don't leave their jobs, they leave their managers. <laughs> How true is that? Now, you know, we, we did... Um we did an interview, a book called um, Do You Work With a Psychopath or something like that. And <laughs> a, a lot of people that get promoted are people that seem to have psychopathic tendencies because they kind of bully their way up. And, I, you know, I get that. But is it that the fundamental structure of business is flawed that you join an organization to work up to become the leader of that organization instead of joining that organization and saying, this is a department I could really make shine because I relate to it, and then be happy in that position and not worry about, well, you're not making more money or you don't have a special title. What's, why is that? What is it that drives people? Mm. Um, I think that's a fundamental question. It, it does do, are people driven to be promoted to the next level to earn more money? You know, I often wonder why people who have a stack load of money want to earn more. Mm. I can't understand that motivation in, in pure financial terms. Far better, I think, to, you know, to have a quality of life, to, to work within a team lead a team but work within a team where everybody is happy and enjoying them, themselves they're productive you know there's no animosity isn't that a better quality of life for the leader and and the team it's it's about you know the qualities required of a leader and, and they've changed so considerably over the years in, in my book i i look at the development of leadership theory and one of the early theories was called the trait theory, traits being qualities. And only 30 years ago, some research identified the required qualities of a leader to be threefold, dominance, masculinity, and conservativeness. Now, I, <laughs> that's really strange and quite funny, really. But more recent research has suggested that the necessary Traits, qualities are enthusiasm, integrity, toughness, fairness, warmth, and humility. So we've moved from this hard, very masculine, dominant, you know, you just do as you're told concept to a much more inclusive, um, a more inclusive environment where the leader is prepared to admit, for example, that he or she has made mistakes. Mm. 
So it's all change and it's changing. But some leaders are stuck in the past and they think they'll get more out of people if they just tell them what to do. You know, what I found with, with some of the great leaders that I've ever worked with is they sit you down and say, look, this this is the goal that I have to achieve. I think you're a good fit for this. Go do it. And then they come and drop by and they check on me and give me advice. And they spend so much time and energy helping me achieve my goal compared to other horrible leaders that basically went, get this done, and then gave you zero feedback. And then obviously, when you came back to them, they say, I could have done a better job. Why are you doing it this way? And then they give you backhanded advice. That's not a great way of doing uh, business or leadership. Uh, Is that trait uh, becoming less important? And are we getting more leaders coming out of universities and and, and growing in organizations that have that more uh, trait where they lead people properly? Well, I hope so. But there's very, very few um, leadership qualifications, um, you know, a master's in, in, in business, for example, where leadership is taught. I think a lot of organizations expect people to be automatic leaders. And for the boss who you just described, what they have to understand is if they want to be successful in themselves, they must realize that they will be measured, they themselves will be measured by the performance of their teams. Mm. Really, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? So why not develop your team so that you yourself will shine rather than expecting the team just to work unaided in, in the in the false hope that, that they'll provide the service and the, the backing for you that you're hoping for. I think it's just fundamental laziness of people. Very cynical, very cynical. Well, do you, do you think you get away with more when you're in a lazy organization that doesn't uh, have checks and balances? Well, what does checks and balances mean? Mm. Are we talking about measuring every element of performance or are we, are we talking about having support systems in place? Mm. I think more and more organizations, I cannot really, really talk about the UK. I, I, you know, I don't know an awful lot of what goes on across the Atlantic, but more and more organizations here, in particular, the people I interviewed for this book who are totally inspirational leaders, more and more organizations are beginning to realize that you know, it is inspirational leaders where you have a vision and you inspire your people to join you on that journey, those people are successful. And the facts, the the statistics just speak for themselves. You know, it um, kind of harks back to great organizations are are led by uh, great visionaries uh, because people are excited about something new and interesting compared to let's just do what this industry has done forever and be boring. Well, innovation and change is, is an ever-present factor, isn't it? But it's more and more so in this 21st century, I think. Mm. Well, it's definitely an opportunity now because before it was, if you change too much, you're going to die. And now, if you don't change all the time, you're history. So definitely there's an opportunity for, for uh, inspirational leaders, more creative leaders, leaders that do things in a different way to grab people's attention. Well, lead- great leaders come to the fore during a period of change uh, because it is that that having a vision 
and inspiring people to join you to achieve that vision. If it's the status quo, does that really require inspirational leaders if we're just doing what we've always done? <laughs> it's, it's when we need to change that, that people need leadership. Mm. Now let's dig into the book a bit because it's fascinating. I mean, it there is so much information in here, but really you break it right down on every level. You've got basic nine sections. Uh, mo- you know, you cover uh, future challenges, the emotional uh, intelligent leader, uh, the psychology contract, extreme leadership. I mean, gosh, you've covered every single leader that I could ever imagine. So how does a person delve into this book do they find the leader that they think they are or think they're working for or would like to be and just jump into that section or should they read it cover to cover well i think no i think you can you can approach it in a, in a, a lot of different ways i've tried to have a progression throughout the book so we, we do start with the how leadership theory has developed past mm. and present then we go on to look at the future challenges of the 21st century leader, uh, one of which, by the way, is innovation, which is really what we've just been talking about. And then uh, other aspects of leadership. But then I finish with um, future leadership, the way forward, because the old ways will not be sufficient for a 21st century leader. So you can look, you could, you could read it cover to cover. You could look at the quotes and, you know, you've mentioned the quotes a couple of times and these are, amazing quotes i think from interviews i i held with 14 of the more most inspirational leaders in this country and they were just i mean i walked out i remember i was interviewing uh, the chief executive of tgi fridays in london and she was just she just you know blew me over and I, after the interview i got out onto the street and i rang my wife and i said margaret i've just interviewed the most amazing woman, the most inspirational woman. She's more enthusiastic than I am. <laughs> so, so, you know, she's, these are just great people and who've made a change. And it's not, it's not wishy-washy. It's not, you know, soft-centered. These are hard-nosed businessmen and women, but they know that they can, they can only achieve their objectives through their people. So you can look at all those quotes. You can look at all the case studies, or you can pick out a chapter. One in particular, you know, I really would like to, uh, to highlight is this one about extreme leadership, leading when life is threatened, mm. because that was one of my big learning um, aspects of the book, because I've never really thought of that before, although I've been writing and teaching and training in leadership for many years. But this concept of how uh, emergency response leaders, you know, fire brigade leaders, for example, or, or soldiers how they lead and and it is different and yet business leaders can learn so much from these people who lead when life is threatened so you can approach the book from lots of different ways i think you know that's a really interesting point that you know when you're in a crisis situation it doesn't have to be life-threatening but crisis situation there's a totally different energy and the day-to-day humdrum or nitpicking that you get from a lot of your people ceases to exist because, guys, we're going to do this or we're all out of a job next Wednesday. So guess what? We're going to be working for the next 48 hours. We're going to fix the problem. Let's go. And everybody says, okay, and they just go and do it. Same thing happens with war. Your country's at war. You say, guess what? You're not going to work anymore. We're going to ship you overseas and you're going to be doing to- something totally different. And everyone goes, okay, it's that impetus that you get with an emergency situation. So 
Is that a dangerous thing to be running a company at uh, that pace at all times that you can get sideswiped with uh, different issues? Well, you, I think you used a very interesting word when you first started that question. Uh, you said we're in trouble. You know, we, we all have to pull together and, and we have to get it out. We have to overcome this challenge. We, we, we. Mm. Not I, I, I or you, you, you. Mm. So in these sort of situations, especially in the military, this concept of, of sharing the problem together, sharing the privations, um, but leading from the front is, is really important. And that's one of the things that I got out of it. I interviewed the most unassuming, self-effacing young captain in, in, the, in the army, a guy called Simon Couples. And his story is just mind-boggling. He was leading uh, his platoon in Afghanistan when they came under fire from the Taliban who were only, I can't remember, 20 or 30 yards away. And yet he stayed with his troops. One of his troops got injured, unfortunately later died. But Simon would not leave that man alone, although, you know, the bullets were flying right, left and centre. That idea of let's do it together, we're all in this together, is a really important message, I think. Mm. You know, when I work in Japan, they've kind of got that hard baked into their system that nobody will leave the office until the leader leaves the office. And because everybody's working so hard, the leader very rarely leaves the office at closing time. He will work an extra two, three, four hours so he won't lose face. And what that ends up doing is like the whole company ends up through you know, basically down delegation. It's like, well, if he's here, I have to be here. And then all the way down to the guy that open closes the darn door. So yeah, it's really tough. And even when you leave, a lot of times the leader or the manager from that department would say, oh, we're all going out for drinks now. So we're actually not stopping work. We're just going to go have some drinks and celebrate the successes for today. Crazy. Well, it's crazy, but it's uh, it's very motivating, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Until you die from overwork. (laughs) <laughs> which is an actual problem that they have there. Um, let's uh, let's talk about your favorite section. I mean, uh, you know, I know that's a totally unfair question, but there must be uh, a part of this book that really uh, you love the most. Well, I have mentioned this chapter about um, leading when life is threatened, mm. so I won't go on about that again. <laughs> but that is my favorite chapter because it's absolutely unique. Nobody has written about that before, to my knowledge, uh, nobody's looked at um, these extreme leadership situations and tried to get business lessons from it. Well, I'd like to dig down on that a little bit because I think that has huge value. I mean, I in in the back of the book, it, it mentions that you uh, were in the military, so you have that type of training. Um, as somebody coming out of the forces with that type of, of discipline and training and, and people have to uh, listen and obey your orders or there's some serious consequences. When you uh, started coaching people and, and working with organizations, did that technique have to be honed down a little bit or, or tweaked a little bit so it's more uh, it works better in, in uh, an organization where the consequences aren't that dear? That's a really interesting question, Bob, because I think a lot of officers in particular leave the military and they think they can transfer that control and command approach to leadership into civilian life and you just can't because in civilian life people will just not be told what to do 
uh, especially in the 21st century, they'll, they'll question, they'll ask, they'll, they'll contest. And if you have that old military aspect, you know, concept that you just do as you're told, that ain't going to work anymore. So you have to modify your approach. Now, I left the military, you know, 30 years ago. But when I was very kindly invited to um, Sandhurst in, in the UK, which is the Royal Military Academy for training, officer training, I, I realized that their approach to leadership is much different than it was when I went through my training 40 odd years ago. It's much more collaborative now. The men know that if you say go, you have to go. And especially in a conflict situation, you know, you, you can't have a situation where the officer is right out the trenches over the top and people start questioning it. But in, uh, on camp, then it's a much more collaborative, uh, collegiate sort of environment. So there is a difference um, according to the situation that the leader faces. And a lot of those lessons can be translated to a non-military environment. You know, I, I remember interviewing somebody um, out of England again about um, the logistics of being in the army and how that could be uh, transposed into uh, an international business situation because a lot of it is is having a large organization that's global. It's all about logistics. Is the different management styles that uh, you talk about in this book, are there people that are better at doing global leadership compared to more country-based leadership and then even small business leadership. Those are three totally different headspaces, but are the key uh, lessons in the book applicable to all three of those groups? Well, one of the, the challenges I, I suggested for future leaders was globalization mm. at the macro level and the micro level. In an office or a factory in here in UK, and I'm sure it's the same with you in Canada or in the, or in the States, it is so multi multicultural now. So a leader has to understand the various cultures. I've worked a lot in the hospitality industry, the hotel and catering industry. And you'll get a five-star hotel in London where there'll be 40-odd, 40 to 50 different languages spoken, so different cultures. So the, the housekeeper from Thailand, for example, the young uh, chambermaid, will have a completely different attitude towards managers than the European or the uh, Arab. So, so globalization and multiculturalism in one workplace is a real challenge for managers. But then you get globalization internationally, where a leader in Canada, let's say, has got offices all over the world. So there's communication issues, there's social media issues, as well as the cultural issues. So I think that is a real challenge for future leaders. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I remember when I was... Uh managing a creative team in Thailand. And the lesson I learned very hard is you cannot get angry at somebody in front of everybody else um, because you lose face. And if that person decides to quit, the whole department will quit in support of that person. So, you know, one day I came in on Monday and there was nobody in the department. So what happens? Uh, you threaten to fire somebody so they all quit. So I had to go find that person give them a bottle of scotch and said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I'm from Canada, I'm an idiot, blah, 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 and totally, def 
basically debased myself. And he said, oh, okay, fine. And then the next day, everybody was at back of the office and happy and working like nothing happened. It was crazy. So definitely you have to be very, very conscious if you're leading, uh, especially if you're leading still in, like if you're in England, but you're leading a global country and you're giving advice to other managers around the world, that can be terrible advice. Yeah, not least China, of course, because China is obviously an up-and-coming industrial nation and they have really different social norms to us. Mm. It was interesting, one of the people I interviewed for the book was the vice president of global leadership development for the biggest hotel company in the world, Intercontinental Hotels. Mm -hmm. And and he was talking about how they have to support their managers working in China, in Thailand, in Australia, and all in India, in Brazil. So it it is an issue. And And it's funny, isn't it? Because your example there of Thailand that's something you have to learn. It's not intuitive. You can't just think you're going to know how that that Thai employee is going to react to that Chinese employee. It is something you have to learn. Therefore, the leader must be prepared, you know, to get his head down and and uh, and accept that he hasn't got all the answers. Yeah, you know, there's um, yet another book we did. It was uh, Consigliere. Uh, I can never pronounce the damn word. Consigliere. Uh, and basically, that's the person behind the leader. And a lot of times, that's a person that has that knowledge on the ground. So, you know, if you're going to be uh, dealing with a, a country, the advice you're getting from people, maybe not the, the, the other CEO or the CFO or C-suite, but one level down is critical advice. And to be a great leader, you have to basically get off your high horse a lot of time and sit down with people and say, so how do I do it? Be humble enough to ask and be very authentic about it. And surround yourself with people who know more than you do. Mm-hmm. That's, yep. that's a, a difficult leadership concept, but it's a very important one. The leader doesn't have to be able to do everything that all his team can do. And a great parallel there, a great example, again, is, is mili- the military. Because especially young officers, they rely so much on their sergeant or their sergeant major or whatever rank, their warrant officer. And... I remember so well when I started I, as a, a flying officer in the Royal Air Force. You know, I thought I knew it all, um, but I didn't. I knew very little. Um, and you begin to realize that you're a warrant officer. If you can get him on side and um, encourage him to help you, then, you know, you're going to go a lot further with a lot less trouble. Well, I think that's a fundamental problem with humans, um, and they don't get the support right at the very beginning with their parents. Like, I'm constantly telling my kids, look, at if you want to excel in class, you go talk to the teacher and tell the teacher what your problems are. That teacher will love you as a student because that's the on- you're going to be the only student that goes up and say, look, at I'm struggling with math. How can I or I don't understand this problem. Explain it to me. They can't wait for that to happen. But the teacher should be reaching out and explaining this to kids. They're not. And and it's just they're, ex- they're exasperating the, the situation by not being more open. You know, Bob, leadership is not rocket science. Mm. I just cannot understand how people get it so wrong. If you've got a deputy or a junior member in the team and you go to her and say, look, I'm a bit stuck. Can you help me out? Can you advise me? How is she going to feel? She's going to feel wonderful. She's going to feel motivated because the boss is asking her opinion. It's not rocket science. You know, just lead as you'd like to be led is, is my 
$64,000 solution to leadership. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting to be a leader. I think a lot of people think that they can be leaders, and when they get into the leadership position, and usually what a leader position is that most people don't realize is you're making decisions all the time, 24-7, and you start to second-guess yourself. So definitely you have to have people on your team that you can trust. You can't have yes people because if you do, you're just going to end up uh, digging an incredibly deep, uh, unmanageable hole. Yeah, because they won't tell you. They won't tell you when you've made a mistake. Um, so they'll just let you drown. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're doing it out of fear. Well, fear or a lack of respect. Yeah, and, and, and both those things, I think if you if you handle them properly, like you said earlier, and to reach out to people and say, look, you know, I'm new here, I'm going to need some help, I'm going to be coming to you guys over the next couple of weeks and ask you some fundamental questions so I can do a better job, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you, and that's your opening speech with people, not that we're going to do this and we're going to push you forward, I'm going to change everything. They don't want to hear that. No, they don't, and the, and what, the concept there is one of servant leadership, Mm -hmm. where you consider yourself to be a servant of your people. And that's a really strange concept that it's actually not a new concept. There's a a Chinese philosopher, I think, uh, 5th century BC, he said to lead people, you must stand behind them. And it's all about accepting that you should use your position, undoubtedly your leadership position, to serve those people who follow you. Now, that's, a, that's quite a difficult concept for some leaders who are the macho leaders, the, the big I ams, you know, the, uh, the transactional leaders, those who don't have the humility to say, I don't know it all, but I'm going to use my position to empower people around me to contribute to the success of me and my team. It's, uh, it's you know, so many of the things we've, spoke about, uh, we've spoken about today, Bob, is psychology. Mm -hmm. It is understanding the mind and how it affects behavior. This was my light bulb moment when I was doing a psychology course. I suddenly realized the connection between leadership and psychology, because if you can define psychology as being understanding the mind and how it affects behavior, that is what leaders do. That is what leaders strive to do, to understand the mind of their people, what makes them tick, their fears, their ambitions, their aspirations, all aspects of their psychology. If we can understand that individual's needs, then you're much more likely to persuade them to work with you. So there's a a real connection that really has not been explored. The book we're talking about today, Leadership Psychology, How the Best Leaders Inspire Their People. I've had Alan Cutler on the line. And Alan, before I let you go, what can our listeners do today to become better leaders? I'll tell you what they can do, Bob. They can take a look in the mirror and they can ask themselves, would I like to be led by me? Mm. So a bit of introspection, a bit of um, questioning. Take a look in the mirror and treat people as you'd like to be treated yourself because you want to be communicated with, you want to be respected, you want to be empowered and all those good aspects. Well, guess what? So do your people. So leaders you'd like to be led. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.